Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. T. Vosden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. And Karen DeKarch-Tusman, Senior Editor. Well, we've got a great pod for you this week. A lot has been happening in the biotech industry. One thing that we won't talk about on this pod, but we will talk about on a special pod tomorrow, is the pending decision at FDA for Biogen's aducanumab Alzheimer therapy. It's one of the biggest decisions that will come before FDA this year. So we're going to devote an entire other pod to discuss that. On today's pod, Amgen's KRAS inhibitor has been approved months ahead of its PDUFA goal. Why this is a landmark approval and why this is the beginning and not the end of the road for KRAS therapies. ARPA-H, it's Biden's DARPA for health. What can it accomplish? Plus, it's still ASCO season. Today, new life for EGFR at ASCO 21. So let's head to Friday's decision from FDA granting accelerated approval to Amgen's KRAS inhibitor. Lauren, why is this a landmark approval? Well, KRAS is one of the most common cancer oncogenes. It's something that was discovered decades ago, I think more than 40 years ago, and it's just been a very difficult target to drug. And I think that alone makes it a huge landmark for cancer patients and for the industry that now has a way to access this really difficult drug target. Yeah, Jeff, let me jump in here as probably the main one of the generation of people that will find this sentimental. I was actually drawn to pharmacology by the beauty of GTPases, the GTP-GDP cycle. Many of us grew up learning about signaling by learning about RAS signaling It's a really signature moment for the industry because it's a molecule, a target that's been known for so long. It probably was the first one to get the moniker of undruggable, which it obviously is not undruggable, and maybe we shouldn't use that term anymore. And I think a lot of people really see this as a signature moment. And I think what's so interesting about it, there are some people, and Lauren can talk about this in a minute, that it was a really rapid approval. I mean, it was like, 30 years and then discovered and then it was rapid. So you know, on the rapid from once they figured out how to do it approval that Lauren can spell out. And also it is the beginning, not the end because there's a whole pipeline of things coming after it. So Lauren, maybe you can elaborate on both of those things. How do they do it so fast, quote unquote? Sure, so I, it all started I think in 2014 when a way to drug this target with small molecules was identified. A certain binding pocket was identified. And we should probably and, mention Kevin Shoke at UCSF. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we've spoken with Amgen throughout the process, and they said our strategy is to go as fast as possible, to do trials in parallel, to make decisions quickly. And I think that's really played out because, what is that, seven years later, there, there's a drug on the market. And once that discovery happened, it wasn't just Amgen. It was a, a flood of companies that, that now we're looking at this G12C mutation. And from there, it spun off to look at the other KRAS mutations, different ways to target the oncogenes that are more prevalent in diseases other than non-small cell lung cancer. So the pipeline at this point, I was surprised when I was doing it on Friday, putting the pipeline together because it's just exploding, especially in the preclinical stages. But there are quite a few in the clinic as well. 
And it's not all small molecules either. It's not. It's mostly small molecules still, which is not surprising, but there are a couple other modalities and I don't know what will happen with those or, or if we'll see new modalities take over in this indication for this target. Are there any other standout molecules you're watching, Lauren? Well, Marathi's small molecule has been tracking just behind Amgen by a couple of months. They've seen some pretty good response rates and they've optimized theirs to try to engage the target for as long as possible, which is important for KRAS because the target recycles every couple of days. It'll be interesting to see how data from their trials play out too. Excellent. And that brings us to this week's Deal in Focus. Samantha Dew's Xi Lab has gained rights to Marathi's Adagrasib in Greater China plus Taiwan. Xi is paying $65 million up front for the KRAS inhibitor, plus $273 million in potential milestones and tiered royalties ranging into the low 20s. The deal covers mainland China, Hong Kong, Macau, as well as Taiwan. Now, Xi shares are trading near their all-time high, and the company has nearly $2 billion in cash on its balance sheet. That's helped by a nearly $900 million offering in April. In that deal, it said that 30% would be earmarked for BD. And our writer, Paul Bananos, is following this deal for us. He tells us that Xi appears to be making larger and more ambitious deals. Most of Xi's deals historically have had upfront payments under $30 million. They are traditionally an in-licensing play, in-licensing assets from the West that they will market in China. This deal with Marathi is the second this year that Xi has done that's larger than $30 million. The first was its partnership with Argenix for local rights to a cancer compound. Argenix received $75 million in Xi equity plus a $75 million non-refundable cost-sharing payment in that deal. And what's more, this brings the Marathi Amgen rivalry to China. Beijing has rights to the Amgen compound, and so it should be interesting to watch. Lauren, what do we know about the differences between the Amgen and Marathi molecules? I think they're really similar. I personally don't know. They both are small molecules against the same mutation. They've taken advantage of the same binding site from what I know. I think pharmacokinetics might be a little bit different. And then, Steve, a question for you. Being our man in D.C., the Amgen molecule has orphan drug status now. How does that affect Marathi when it comes to market? It probably won't if Marathi can demonstrate that their molecule is different, that it's a different drug, then orphan status for Amgens will will not be relevant. The only reason it would be relevant. The only way that Amgens would block another drug is if they're the same. Interesting. So and it sounds like we need to reach out to Marathi and get some more details on how they're going to show that the molecules are differentiated. Yeah. So just because they go against the same target doesn't mean that they're the same. This has been litigated quite literally in the courts and at FDA many times. 
and they go against the same target, but they also have different clinical development route. Both companies are testing these in a whole range of combinations in different indications. So they won't necessarily be going head to head in every indication, depending on which combinations end up working better. I think Amgen's is in more than 10 different combinations in a basket trial right now. And Marathi also has a bunch going on. Yeah. And you can dig into this story on our website, biocentury.com. Lauren's done a, a nice pipeline chart that will let you keep score of all these molecules in the class. Let's turn back to Steve and what's happening with President Biden. He has unveiled ARPA-H. What is it, Steve, and what can it accomplish? So ARPA-H is supposed to be like DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the organization that's credited with creating the internet, GPS, and other breakthrough technologies. So I, I always find it interesting to dig into the history of things, which I did a little bit in my story about ARPA-H. Most of the stories about ARPA-H suggest that it emerged suddenly from the Biden White House or the Biden transition team, like Athena emerging from Zeus's forehead. But the story really starts earlier with a friend and supporter of Donald Trump, a guy named Bob Wright, who's the former head of NBC, whose wife died of pancreatic cancer, and he started a foundation, the Suzanne Wright Foundation. He came close to getting the Trump administration to create what he called HARPA, which is now being called ARPA-H. It didn't happen because the idea was floated at the time to take the money for it from the National Cancer Institute's budget, which NIH vigorously rejected and killed it. This time, NIH is solidly on board because the plan is to put it at NIH. But patient groups are adamantly opposed to this. They say the whole idea of ARPA is to do things differently from NIH and that ARPA has to be independent. Eric Lander, the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, told Congress last week that ARPA-H has to be at NIH to avoid duplication and competition. The people that support ARPA-H and came up with the idea in the first place would argue that it won't duplicate NIH and that competition wouldn't be a bad thing. Whatever its merits, Biden, Lander, and NIH Director Francis Collins say ARPA-H should be at NIH, and I wouldn't bet against any one of them individually, and the three of them together, I think they're pretty certain to win on this. So the real question is, how $6.5 billion over three years, which is what the ARPA-H budget is proposed to be, how's that going to change things? Biden has said it's going to end cancer as we know it during his term in office, and he cites DARPA's role in creating the internet. But ARPANET, the network that became the internet, went live in 1969. It took a long time. As Simone mentioned earlier when she was talking about KRAS, technologies that look like overnight successes, usually, if you look, there's about two or three decades of hard work that people glossed over that happened before that overnight success. So, so wait, Steve, I want to go back to what you said. Is First of all, you think it's quite likely that it will end up in NIH? Oh, yeah. I think, like I said, it, it would be a fool who would bet against President Biden, Eric Lander, and Francis Collins and say that they could roll over them and convince Congress to make it an independent agency. I just don't see that happening. I do want to ask this question, though. You know, your story noted that this would effectively swallow. I can't remember if that was the word you used, but the idea was that it would effectively swallow NCATS. It would effectively incorporate what NCATS is doing. And isn't there an argument to be made that they had their bite at the cherry with NCATS? NCATS, and Chris Austin has now left NCATS, and he was like one of the big, the big engine there. 
So isn't there an argument to be made that they didn't succeed that well with it, with that kind of function inside NIH, and therefore having it as a satellite or independent body might be better? So I sort of didn't actually say that they were going to swallow NCATS. What it said is, when Francis Collins was asked that by a member of Congress, he said it's a possibility that they would swallow NCATS into ARPA-H. He didn't say it was a certainty. We don't know if that's really going to happen. He also pointed out that NCATS has been, I think as he delicately put it, modestly funded. It certainly hasn't gotten anything like $6.5 billion is, over the years. Whose discretion is it? NIH gets a budget, NCI has its own one, but then within NIH, who makes the decision about how much goes to each institute? Congress allocates the money to the different institutes. It's never given NCATS very much money for its first uh, years in existence. It basically gave it zero money. It just moved programs that existed in other parts of NIH into NCATS. The other argument would be that what ARPA-H is supposed to do is fundamentally different from NCATS. So it's interesting. Francis Collins used the expression, he said, oh, it would be NCATS on steroids. But what he really meant is it would be one of the programs at NCATS on steroids. It's a program called the Cures Acceleration Network, which was supposed to be a kind of DARPA-like organization, which has never really gotten substantial amounts of money. When I put it to Chris Austin before he left NCATS, and I said, well, isn't, I actually, it's funny because I use the exact same expression. I said, isn't uh, ARPA-H NCATS on steroids? He said that it wasn't because if you look at the overall mission of NCATS, it's different from what's imagined for ARPA-H. ARPA-H is envisioned as a translational research organization, an organization that's going to take basic research discoveries and drive them toward the commercial market or drive them toward products that can benefit patients. The whole idea of NCATS was to create translational science, not translational research. In other words, to improve the way that medical products are developed. So they did it in some cases by actually doing some product development, but everything that they were trying to do, at least this is what Chris Austin has been saying over the years, is aimed at improving the system, not actually creating a specific product or a specific therapy or cure. ARPA-H is going to be much more focused on driving the development and creation of technological and scientific platforms that are going to be used to create cures and treatments. And I, I think one thing that is, sorry, one thing that is just worth pointing out when you talk about Eric Lander, just reminding the audience that he led and founded the Broad Institute, which really has a very similar mission. And the Broad Institute was the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard was its name, but it sat separately from both MIT and Harvard. And it is very completely translationally focused and pretty successful at it, actually. So I think his experience in having done that, I'm interested to see how much he tries to shape ARPA-H using that experience. Well, he's certainly going to have a very big say in how ARPA-H is created. And it's important to him personally, I'm sure. And it's certainly important to the White House and honestly to the nation that ARPA-H succeed, however it's created. As you pointed out, he really made something of the Broad Institute. There were a lot of people when the Broad Institute was created who said, ha, you'll never get anything to work trying to get Harvard and MIT to cooperate on something. He pulled it off and arguably has created one of the most successful translational science endeavors in, well, in history. So again, I wouldn't bet against him here. I think that 
it's quite likely that they're going to create something that's going to do some things that are going to be tremendously impactful. I think that how impactful it's going to be is going to be a function of how it's set up, whether if it's at NIH, how independent of NIH it's going to be. Michael Stebbins, who's a former OSTP official, who's been very instrumental in creating the ARPA-H concept, told me that if it is at NIH, he thinks that it has to be walled off from the other parts of NIH so that it doesn't become what he called a slush fund for mm-hmm. the other institutes. Francis Collins, when he was testifying to Congress, had a different vision for it. He said, no, it's not going to be separate. It's going to be working very closely with the other institutes, and it's going to advance things that they would like to do, but haven't had the ability to do either because of the structure of the way that they operate through peer-reviewed grants or because they lack the funding. Ned Sharpless, the head of NCI, when he was talking to the AACR meeting, gave some examples of some of the things that he'd like to see uh, ARPA-H do. So there's obviously a lot of thinking that's going on behind the scenes. I think we're going to learn more about the details of what NIH's plans are for it soon, probably this week. Steve, just one last question on this. What do you think the opportunity will be for companies, for the private sector? One of the things I mentioned in your story was an analogy to RADx, which was this great program accelerating the development of COVID diagnostics. And there it was this like shark tank situation where companies were submitting their products, they were getting triaged, and it was very product focused. But here you mentioned there's going to be platforms as the focus. So do you see companies getting contracts? Yeah, Absolutely. What's the Absolutely. I'm sure that there's going to, one of the things that's going to be different about ARPA-H from the way that NIH usually does business is there's going to be much more of a, an emphasis on working closely with the private sector, contracting with companies to create technologies and to commercialize them. That's one of the things that DARPA does. We've written about it before. DARPA played a, a huge role in funding the early work at some of the pioneering companies that have been involved in the COVID-19 countermeasures development, Epsilera, Moderna. And I think that it will work really closely with private companies, that ARPA-H will also work very closely with private companies. They're the ones that have the ability to make things happen and make things happen quickly. All righty. Thanks for that, Steve. And again, Steve's story is up on our website, biocentry.com. Let's turn to ASCO. There are a lot of therapies against EGFR for cancer. Karen, what's new at this year's ASCO? Well, one of the areas that was apparently previously an empty wasteland and now is a full area is around therapies for patients with EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations. These patients were not served well by tyrosine kinase inhibitors because they have a conformational change that means your typical TKI, I guess, wasn't binding there or wasn't functioning. But we kicked off shortly after the ASCO abstracts dropped. There was actually an approval for that indication with a Janssen's bispecific that targets EGFR and CMET. And interestingly enough, the CMET arm wasn't so important in this patient population. It was just about something that targeted EGFR well from the outside. But in addition to that, we saw a bunch of ASCO abstracts about therapies that are specifically targeted or can address the exon 20 insertion mutation and a, a bunch of small molecules. Cicada's mobocertinib is one of them. And there was some interesting data from Dizol and Cullinan 
on small molecules. And Takeda's, they've got a pedufidate in October. So that was an area we saw pick up for a population that was previously not well served by existing EGFR inhibitors. And then another piece was looking into the combination side of things. So again, here Janssen's bispecific, the other arm does matter. Uh, so here we're looking at patients with more common EGFR mutations in non-small cell lung cancer, where there's a resistance that emerges after a while. The TK has initially worked, but then the cancer's mutated. And one of the primary forms of resistance seems to be CMET amplification. So we saw a bunch of abstracts aimed at that. So Janssen's bispecific with the CMET and EGFR targeting, but also abstracts from Novartis and Merkaga, where they have recently approved CMET inhibitors that they're now combining with TKIs like Tegriso and Jafitinib. Looking basically at progress in areas where existing EGFR inhibitors weren't serving patients either because it didn't bind in the first place or because of emerging resistance. This kind of continues that old theme of things that have been around for a long time, and then we find a way to either get at them anew or make them better. And I think it also continues a theme by a century has picked up that is, this is going to be a really big year for targeted oncology, for targeted therapies in oncology. I'd just like to make a quick note to our dear listeners that now you know who on the BioCentury staff can actually pronounce your drug names. We're thinking of having Karen set up a master class to teach the thick tongued folks like myself how to let these beautiful generic names just roll off the tongue. Karen and Lauren have been digging into the ASCO abstracts over the past couple of weeks. The conference kicks off this Friday. They'll be looking at the late breakers. A couple of recent stories just to call your attention to. We did take a look at 41BB. And that's another checkpoint that's showing very early promise. And of course, my personal favorite, BCMA. Responses are getting better with time for CAR-Ts and bispecifics here. And CAR-Ts are working in earlier lines too. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow when we have our special on aducanumab, previewing what's to come. And ahead on biocentury.com, we'll have an emerging company profile on the latest company to emerge from Lonnie Mulder's family office. That's Philadelphia-based Interius. They are seeking to develop in vivo CAR T cell therapies. And the company is run by Phil Johnson, who I had the pleasure to speak with a couple of weeks ago. Other stories in the works. Karen is looking at market opportunities for COVID booster vaccines. And Jato, the French VC, has added a fourth portfolio company that gives the firm its most advanced therapy to date and its first non-cell and gene therapy program. I'm looking at how the firm is going about building its portfolio. That's all we have time for. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll check in with you tomorrow, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>